0: All right, let's pray and jump into the sermon. Lord, God, we just praise you. We glorify your name. We're here, we want to worship you. We want to give you praise and glory and honor. And Lord, I pray that as we do, your spirit would stir something in our hearts, that you would draw us closer to the way of Christ, that, Lord, you would help us to, Lord, prioritize and put you first, to love you more fully and to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our campaign is called The Third Way. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now. Uh, basically, I've, I've been I've been uh, introducing this kind of the same way for the first few weeks to get, get it kind of in your head and get you guys thinking through this. But basically what we're talking about in this campaign is how to follow the way of Jesus in a polarized culture. Uh, we've been talking a lot about politics and how politically polarized we are as a culture and how we can follow the way of Jesus Within it, Now, here's our big idea that we've been really talking about every week and the whole campaign. For Christians, our way of life and our thinking must first be informed by Jesus. So our way of life, our thinking must first and foremost be informed by Jesus, not some other ideology or way of living. That means his teaching... So what Jesus taught is true. We must first accept that as true and follow that as true. And Jesus' way of living and way of being, that is our, our primary framework for how we should think and live in the world. We've been touching on the Sermon on the Mount a lot and looking at the life of Jesus to see how did he think and how did he live and how can we pattern our life after his way. Now, uh, by way of confession and to kick things off, for us this morning. Uh, One of the mistakes that I've made in the first six years of pastoring was was to think that we should be apolitical, okay? To think that the church should be apolitical. We would often hear the refrain just to just preach the gospel, right? I've since come to realize that we can't and we shouldn't, okay? COVID obviously made me realize we can't, right inevitably the decisions that we made had political implications so more on that in a minute but what what i don't mean is that i'm going to like promote a certain political party i don't mean that i'm going to you know, endorse a candidate and all of that stuff that's not at all what i mean here's what i do mean though we can't and we shouldn't those are two different things first we can't right obviously as i said covid we couldn't Um, we couldn't be apolitical because any decision that we made had political implications, right? Because that was a very political thing. And as things get more and more political or more things fall under political categories in our society, then basically everything we talk about has political ramifications in some capacity or another. So for example, today we're going to talk about the image of God a little bit. And when we talk about the image of God, if I am to preach the full counsel of God and talk about this. That has implications for racism. The image of God has implications for immigrants and refugees and how we think and interact with immigrants and refugees. It has implications for the unborn and the elderly. It has implications for how we treat the poor and LGBTQ people. So it has implications for how we should think and how we should treat, for example, the poor. But it doesn't specifically tell us whether that should be a private sector endeavor or we should emphasize more money in the private sector or in the public sector. So there's lots of uh, freedom within that. But it does teach us how we should think and view the poor and how we should care for them, and that we have to have a heart for them. Okay, so we can't avoid it if we are to preach the full counsel of God. And secondly, we shouldn't avoid it. We shouldn't. Again, these are two different things. Over the last, uh, let's see, six years or so, it's become quite obvious that political ideology, idolatry has spread like a cancer within the evangelical church. And all the while, pastors have been avoiding talking about it (laughs) under the guise of trying to be apolitical and just preach the gospel. And so I think it would be malpractice for me as a pastor called to shepherd your souls through the current cultural climate that we are in for me to avoid the topic of one of the biggest idolatries facing us today as a church what's happened is many have formed their political ideology ideology and then they have figured out how they can fit the way of Jesus into their political ideology Political party then becomes the primary allegiance, and Jesus secondary. So what we've done, and I like this analogy of, uh, if you've made spaghetti recently, right, or whatever, like a <laughs> the uh, filter. Um, what's that thing called? Why am I blanking? Oh, Colander. Beautiful. Thanks, Ross. Um, I like this. <laughs> Perfect. 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 <laughs> <laughs> keep more of the good stuff in the soup and let the broth fall through because I'm not a brothy fan. Okay, so, <laughs> so what we do is we, we tend to take our political ideology, become, ideology becomes a colander, the filter, and then we, we, we pour the Christian faith through it and we're free to let some drip through and some what we like to stay in there. right? So the stuff... That we don't like or we don't agree with are in our political ideology. That just goes down the drain, and then the stuff that we do like we keep. Instead of having the way of Jesus be the filter, and that we pour everything else through it, and what is according and in line with the way of Jesus we keep, and everything else filters through. So that's kind of what we're after: is we are after uh, making the way of Jesus first and foremost, primary in our life and filtering everything else through it. So the first week, we talked about just how the way of Jesus is better. And I say all of that before if you're wondering, like, man, why are we talking about politics so much? (laughs) That's why, okay? Because, again, uh, it is my calling as your pastor and shepherd to help you follow the way of Jesus in the current cultural climate that we are in. And I want to do that as best I can. And sometimes that means making you a little bit uncomfortable (laughs) because it's in our discomfort that we tend to grow the most. Two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus, the way of Jesus is not just about winning and losing. If we're to follow the way of Jesus, obedience is to be our primary concern and our primary perspective. Last week, we talked about how our general posture towards the culture should be one of a faithful presence within the culture not a purity from, relevant to, or defensive against posture. Today, I'm taking aim at political polarization again and how it seeks to dehumanize others and how that does not align with the way of Jesus. Dehumanization is a very powerful tool in the hands of those who benefit from a very polarized society. I wrote it in the devotional was politicians, they build their base. Pundits, they expand their reach. Foreign governments, they sow division among their enemies. And trolls online, they get a kick out of creating chaos. And they're just having fun with it, right? So there are those in our culture who are intentionally trying to polarize us and draw us away from the way of Jesus in doing so. And they often do so by dehumanizing. The opposite side. And when we dehumanize others, we retreat further into our isolationism and further away from them, or further into our silo and our group of people. Instead of loving our enemies, we hate them. Instead of praying for our enemies, we fear them. We judge and receive their judgment in return. We view human beings not as those created in the image of God, but through the ideologies they espouse. So instead of viewing a person as created in the image of God, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect, we view them primarily through the lens of Democrat, a Republican, pro-choice, pro-life. And those markers become identity markers for them, not just ideas that they espouse, came across this study in an article by David French a couple well, a while back and came across it again as I was doing some research for today. And I linked it, I linked you to the article on Monday's devotional, but David French references this study done by Beyond Conflict, an organization that does statistical analysis and research. They titled this study America's Divided Mind. So they asked, first of all, uh, to define the extent to which your political opponents are fully evolved on a scale from 1 to t- 100. So They first asked, like, define how, uh, how evolved are you and your political party on a scale of 1 to 100. And in that first question, everybody, you know, pretty uh, predictably said n- mid-90s. Both parties said mid-90s. And then they asked them to define the extent to which your political opponents are fully evolved on a scale from 1 To 100. So, Democrats, they rated Republicans with a median of 83. Republicans, they rated Democrats with a median of 80. Okay, so the the difference is a little concerning, right? Like, we're a 90, you're an 80, you're an 83. It's a little concerning, but it's not not too dramatic. But then they asked another question, and this question was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. They said, they asked, the participants to guess how evolved members of the other party consider them to be on the same scale, okay? So they asked a Republican to indicate how evolved, what a Democrat would say about them. Make sense? Okay, so what's your perception of how the other party is viewing you? This is where the statistics get quite interesting. Democrats estimate Republicans rate them at a median of 48. (laughs) Republicans estimate Democrats rate them with a median of 28, okay? So, to sum it up, Democrats, they actually rated Republicans with an 83. So when they asked Democrats to rate how evolved they are on a scale of one to 100, Democrats actually rated Republicans 83. But Republicans perceive Democrats to rate them at a 28. Republicans actually rated Democrats at 80. And Democrats perceive Republicans to rate them at a 48. That's a big point difference in both of those. So what's happening is individuals are thinking, they're led to believe, because they don't have interactions with others within the different party, they are led to believe that they think way less of themselves than they actually do. And so if that's your perception of what somebody thinks of you, you're going to distance yourself from them further and further, right? So, for example, if I think that Ross thinks I'm far less evolved than he is, I'm just going to avoid him. (laughs) Even if it's not true. Even if he thinks very highly of me. And so, this is how this polarization goes. So, the dehumanization goes even, it's a step beyond just what do you think of the other party. It goes to, what do you think the other party thinks of you? And so, what's the antidote to this? Well, Jesus, he lived in a very polarized society politically, which is very interesting to read through the Gospels and to learn how even the statement, Jesus is Lord, was a political statement. And we'll see that in just a moment here. When you say, Jesus is Lord, you're claiming Caesar isn't Lord Jesus, in fact, is of a higher authority than Caesar. And in this culture, they viewed Caesar as divine. Okay. Political statement. So in Matthew 22, we read this account in the life of Jesus. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They did this often. But this is a particularly clever trap that they have laid for Jesus. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, so a little background context. Pharisees were a group of the most strict religious sect of Judaism. There were three primary sects, and the Pharisees were the most strict. They wanted Roman rule. They wanted the Romans gone. They wanted to govern themselves so that they could practice their faith without Roman occupation and rule. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were another group of Jews who were loyal to Herod. King Herod was the puppet king set up over Judea by Caesar and the Roman government. So Herod represented their occupation. And they were loyal to him. And so they're going to ask Jesus if they should pay taxes or not. And so they would, of course, say, yes, you should pay taxes. And if anybody was teaching something against Herod and the Roman occupation, they would feel inclined to report them for sedition. So that's, those are the two groups that come together to ask Jesus this question. But then also, there's, there's more going on. Among Jesus' 12 disciples, he has a tax collector, former tax collector, in Matthew. Okay, So this question that they're going to ask again, should we pay taxes? Matthew's like, I made my living on it. <laughs> for years, I made a living on this. I made lots of money collecting taxes for Rome. And the Jewish people really didn't like that for the most part, that Tax collectors would work for Rome and collect taxes from them because it reminded them of their occupation. And also it took their money, right? That's not fun. (laughs) Nobody likes that. And so they really despise tax collectors. You'll read in the New Testament, it often says tax collectors and sinners. They're kind of synonymous. They go hand in hand, right? That's the way they viewed tax collectors. So Matthew, he's probably got a lot of trauma from working this job. People have said some awful stuff to him, right? He's probably got an ax to grind, And now he's thrilled that Jesus is reaching out to him and to others, whereas nobody else would. Also among Jesus' 12 disciples is this guy named Simon the Zealot. Okay. Simon was a zealot. He's the zealot, right? Uh, It's not Simon Peter, a different Simon that we don't know very much about, okay, from uh, the records in the Gospels. We We don't know hardly anything about him. But zealots, they wanted Rome gone, and they were willing to fight for it. So... Even 75 years before Jesus came onto the scene, there was a man named Judas, not Jesus' disciple, Judas, another common name of the day. He led a rebellion against Rome and failed miserably. Rome crushed him, right? So the zealots were constantly trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, and they wanted to fight about it. which I, I only saw it in Matthew's Gospel, but it kind of gave me a kick. Matthew's the only one who noted that Simon was a zealot. So, maybe the other ones did. I didn't check. You can can cross-reference me later. But Matthew notes that Simon was a zealot, because he was a former tax collector. Three years, 12 dudes, one zealot, one tax collector. Okay, it doesn't... (laughs) Imagine the tension that was going on in their day-to-day life. So, I feel like Matthew just wanted to note that, to be like, hey, guys, I put up with this dude for three years, like... Give me some credit here, man. This guy's crazy. <clears throat> so they go on. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're just trying to butter him up here. It's just really funny. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. <laughs> Again, they're leading him. They're leading him. Say something crazy, Jesus. Like, say something dramatic that's going to get you in trouble. Tell us then what is your opinion? is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, in this day and age, there's different types of taxes, just like we have today, right? And this imperial tax, the specific type of tax that is referenced here, is Roman citizens were exempt from it. So if you're a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay this tax. But the people in Judea were not Roman citizens, so they had to pay extra in taxes. It was a bitter reminder of their subjugation to Rome. And the other thing I thought about as I was reading through it this time, was everybody formed an opinion on this. You have your opinion. If you lived in this culture for any amount of time, every year you have to go pay your taxes, right? So you either were in support of it or you hated it and did it anyways, or you practiced civil disobedience and didn't pay them, right? And took the risk to see what happens. Every year you're forced to put your cards on the table and what you thought about this issue, so imagine listening to this question, being among Jesus' disciples. You've got your opinion already made up. What's Jesus going to say? You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> You've been here before, right? Like, wh- If he doesn't agree with me, I'm wrong. Uh, what am I going to do then? Am I going to not follow Jesus anymore over this issue? Or am I going to submit to his teaching and change my opinion? If he answers yes, the Pharisees and Zealots, they're mad at him because they don't want to pay taxes. If he answers no, the Herodians and tax collectors are mad at him, and he gets reported and likely arrested. Very politically charged question in community. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. More on the hypocrites later. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscriptions. So they're holding on to this coin that would have a picture of Caesar on it, and it would say, and they've uncovered in excavations, denarii, denarii, yes, uh, from this day and age that read, Augustus Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Okay. So, son of the divine Augustus. They're saying he's divine by nature. So, again, as I mentioned earlier, saying Jesus is Lord, implied, and Jesus is the Son of God, implied competition with Caesar and that Jesus is superior to him. Caesar's, they replied, and he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's just one of the most amazing answers. This is like mic drop moment, walk away, and you know, like, you guys aren't as impressed. I don't know, whatever, okay. Yeah, you've heard it before. I get it. But <laughs> okay, so what's happening here, remember Jesus calls them hypocrites. Most likely, devout Pharisees probably shouldn't have even been carrying a coin in the first place. It has an image on it. It says, to the divine, uh, to the son of divine Augustus, right? Claiming that Tiberius Caesar is divine. Some of them probably viewed this as a violation of the second commandment. Right, to not have a graven image, make a graven image of a God. If, nothing, if, it's, not a, if it's not a violation of the commandment, it's pretty darn close. And these guys, remember, were like, we're going to stay as far away from breaking the commandment as possible. So even the fact that they presented him a coin was likely a mark of their hypocrisy. But also, the next piece, when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, what he's pointing to and is their background theology of the image of God being on all people. Genesis 1 talks about how God creates all humans in his image. Genesis 9, it talks about how the image of God is what gives us human dignity and value and why humans shouldn't be murdered or why, why it's wrong to take the life or to harm another human being. What separates us from the rest of creation. And so when he says this, To give to God what is God's, what he's pointing to, he makes everybody uncomfortable with this, with this statement. He doesn't just answer the question. He says, yeah, pay your taxes, but there's a deeper reality that you all are missing with what's going on here. So one, Herodians, don't give yourself to Herod and to Caesar. Give yourself to God. God's image is on you. He should have priority in your life. Give yourself to him first and fully. And then, hey, remember, everybody else here is also created in the image of God. And remember this scene. You've got the Herodians, you've got tax collectors, you've got Pharisees, you've got all these people who have been arguing with each other for years about this stuff, and you've got Jesus. And by bringing this insincere question, trying to trap Jesus, they had violated the image of God on each other. They were using each other for their political gains, They had violated the image of God on Jesus, regardless of what they thought of him and who he was, by trying to get him killed. So they all would have felt a little convicted about this. Jesus again points them to that deeper reality, that you guys are created in the image of God, and so you should treat one another with dignity, honor, and respect. Band, why don't you guys come and get set up? Our big idea is this, that you are created in the image of God to give yourself first and fully to him. This has a few different implications that I'll unpack when I come back up. But just like Jesus was pointing to, this deeper reality. He doesn't just answer the simple question of, pay your taxes. We all just want to say, yeah, yes, give me the simple answer. Jesus says, no, there's something deeper going on in your heart about why you're even asking the question. And he points to this deeper spiritual truth, this reality that they are all created in God's image. And if they would just give themselves first and fully to God, they wouldn't be in this situation. (laughs) Let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord, God, we thank you for your word that convicts, that challenges us. Lord, as we unpack this and as we think through this and put ourselves in this place, Lord, We're reminded to follow the way of Jesus, that Jesus, you are following the kingdom. You were teaching us how to live our life as a part of your kingdom. And Lord, not to just follow any other way or any other ideology. And so often it doesn't align perfectly with any of them. And the theology of the image of God is one of those. So Lord, help us to give ourselves first and fully to you. To recognize the image of God upon others and treat them with honor, dignity, and respect as they deserve. Not to use people for our political ends or gains. Lord, you are good, and we praise you. Be honored and glorified in our praises now. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, as we were just singing how great you are, how victorious you are, Lord, we want to worship you with all of our heart. Lord, as we worship, would you give us a sense of your glory, of your wonder, of your awe, oh, just how awesome you are, Lord. And in doing so, we're reminded of just how far superior the way of Jesus is. So, Spirit, would you stir in our hearts to follow you first and foremost. Fully give all of ourselves to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. I read this again this week. I think I shared it with you a long time ago. Um, but I read this. I wanted to begin the application with this. Um, when I read it, it just, man, in this context of political polarization, it just hits home. Um, and it rings so true. C.S. Lewis wrote this in the middle of the 20th century during World War II in England, and he wrote it. This it's book called The Screwtape Letters, super creative. He wrote it as a conversation between two demons. Uh, good old Uncle Screwtape is educating his nephew Wormwood on how to better lead his patient, a human being, astray and lead them more towards... Satan and his demons then towards the enemy, in this case, is God, okay? So it's written from that perspective of demons tempting and trying to lure people astray. But oh my goodness, from this creative perspective, C.S. Lewis just speaks so many truths that apply to today as well. Here's what he says. He says, all extremes except extreme devotion to the enemy, that is God, remember, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent. And then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction. And it is our business to inflame them. So as we said at the beginning of this campaign, there are lots of forces, your own personal sinful nature, um, our culture, and even Satan and his demons are trying to draw us to the poles of our societal issues. Then he goes on later. Whichever he adopts, he's talking about patriotism or pacifism as the two poles within the church of the day that they are arguing against, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. This description that he's going to give here is one of the best descriptions of Christian nationalism before anybody was using the term christian nationalism then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause in which christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the british war effort or of pacifism the attitude which he wants to guard against is that in which the temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience so subtly, what he's saying is that's our, that's our emphasis, that's our point, that's our motivation. Remember, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, obedience. How do we use the current temporal affairs primarily as material for obedience? How do we learn to obey God in the midst of a polarized society? Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of world the end he is pursuing. That is one of the most profound statements. Something that I think you should reflect on regularly. Reflect on this today. Reflect on this in your daily devotional. I'm going to write it in my daily <laughs> devotional area. Once you've made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. Is God your end? Or are you just using God to achieve another means that you desire? That's what he's getting at. Are you using do you use your faith to achieve the political end that you want? We do this in all other areas of life as well. Do you just use God, your faith, to achieve your retirement goals? Is your faith just a means to achieve a better social life? Is your faith a means to achieve whatever else you desire? Or is God the end? Is God the one you are genuinely worshiping or not? Because if you're using God as a means to another end, God is not God then in your life. That other thing is God because you desire it more than him. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers, sacraments, and charity. He is ours. And the more, quote, religious, on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cage full down here. Big idea, again. You are created in the image of God, so give yourself first and fully to him. That has a few... Profound implications that remember our conversation, the the conversation, the question that they were trying to trap Jesus with. It has a few really good implications that we should hear from, from the text. When we give ourselves first and fully to God, we first hold the way of Jesus as the supreme authority in our lives. So remember, Jesus, by saying, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, he says, go ahead and pay your taxes and give unto God what is God says, you are created in the image of God, so give yourself first and fully to God. He's reminding the Herodians, hey, don't give yourself first and foremost to Herod and to Caesar. Give yourself first to God. He's reminding the Pharisees who are just using the Herodians and others in this conversation to try to trap Jesus to achieve their political ends. He said, that is a violation of the image of God on all people. Now, I love, again, how Jesus answers this question. He answers their question. He doesn't dodge it. He doesn't avoid it. He says, yeah, pay taxes. Go ahead. Do it. It's good. But what he points to is the deeper reality, again, that they needed to hear, the deeper spiritual truth that they were all violating at the moment. He didn't just give the simple answer. He didn't just say, yep, pay your taxes. He could have, Right? But then they all to miss the point. Jesus points to the more complex, deeper spiritual heart of the matter, and that their political idolatry had blinded them to those deeper spiritual truths. They needed to be reminded that they were created in the image of God. And so, when I think about that, when Jesus, when we're holding his way as the supreme authority in our lives, we need to be reflecting not just on the simple answers, but on the deeper spiritual truths that One, lead us to ask those questions in the first place and remind us what's most important. We have to stop expecting simple answers to complex questions and then getting bored when we have to think through a complex answer. (laughs) Honestly, I think that's what happens a lot is we ask big, deep questions and then when we hear the answer, we just, we kind of tune out because we don't really want to think about it that much. It's too much to think about right now. And we certainly don't want to sit and spend time reflecting on the deeper spiritual truth of what's going on in my heart and why I'm not viewing these other folks as created in the image of God and why I haven't surrendered all of myself to him. We do that a lot. We also need to stop looking for ways, looking to the text or looking to the words of Jesus to just vindicate our own ways of thinking and living. We all do this. When we read scripture, we want to filter out what we like and what we're already doing. We take those. And the ways that challenge us, we want those to just fall through. And we have selective hearing. It's not just men that do this, all right? We Probably do it more, but... As I was thinking through this story again, like, I wonder how the following conversations went after this encounter. When the Pharisees encountered the Herodians again, if they ever did, right? Who knows? Maybe they just avoided each other. But I wonder what they heard Jesus say. I imagine the Herodians just heard what they wanted to hear. said, yeah, pay your taxes. That's what he said. (laughs) Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the Pharisees, they just heard what they wanted to hear and said, yeah, they told you, give yourself to God, not to Herod. (laughs) Jesus owned you, man. It's like, yeah, no, he said both, though. We want to selectively take the things that we like and then leave the things that we don't. Instead of allowing the full teaching of Jesus the entire counsel of God to make us uncomfortable sometimes. Because again, it's through our discomfort that we grow. I have to keep reminding my son, he gets, he gets growing pains really bad in his shins a lot. I'm like, hey man, this is, like, this is what you get. When you're growing, it hurts sometimes. It can be just uncomfortable, but that's how we grow. And so Jesus tells everybody to give themselves first and fully to God. When we give ourselves first and fully to God, we also view all people as they are, created in the image of God and worthy of dignity dignity and honor. So we can't diminish others by thinking less of them than ourselves. As that study showed, we can't diminish others by also thinking that they think worse of us than they actually do. That's complicated, I know, right? (laughs) Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. It's really challenging to do fully following the way of Jesus when we give ourselves fully to him. It's impossible to do when we've aligned ourselves more with another ideology than with Christ. A while back, uh, my wife Savannah she got a text from somebody who was mad about some political uh, event that took place, and in the text mentioned something of like it was dehumanizing towards a certain uh, political figure. And Savannah's so articulate. If you have ever had a conversation with her; she's wonderful at this. But she just, over the course of a number of texts, just kind of drew the conversation to the image of God on this person that you're talking about. And yes, you don't know them personally, but you're talking about a human being created in the image of God whom we are called to love as followers of Jesus. And then drew the conversation towards what is this doing to your soul, right? If you're this angry about a policy issue, that you're willing to overlook the image of God on another human being and violate the teaching of Jesus, what is that doing in you? Who are you becoming through this? Are you becoming a more loving person? Learning to love even our enemies, perceived enemies, right? And so what I want to do is just give you a minute to just sit and reflect. First, I want to give you a moment to just give yourself first and fully to God. Just take a moment and just pray. God, I surrender everything to you. I want to follow your way first and foremost. Even when it competes with other ideologies that I hold, I'm going to follow your way. And next I want you to think about any person or any group of people whom you struggle to view as being created in the image of God. would you just move us through your Holy Spirit to follow your way when everything within us the culture around us even evil spiritual beings are trying to draw us away from the way of Jesus to draw us to hate our enemies and not love our enemies to despise those who persecute us and not pray for them Lord, would you help us to view all people as created in the image of God? That we would guard the way we perceive them, that we would guard the way that we perceive they perceive us. (laughs) And Father, that we would learn to love and treat all people with dignity, honor, and respect as you call us to. Help us, Lord, in this polarized climate to live your way, Jesus, to represent your way well. That, Lord, we would be a calm presence, a faithful presence of the gospel in this culture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.